In the first uh, two lessons, we had a chance to look at the messenger and uh, what it takes to become a messenger, be accepted as a messenger among Muslims. One of the challenges we found is that sometimes Muslims reject the gospel because they've rejected the messenger. They don't accept him as a valid messenger or they don't accept that, that this person could even speak about religious things. And so they end up rejecting us even before we get a chance to share. Now, what happens if we do get a chance, if we get accepted as a messenger? We've built some friends. We've now drawn a little nearer to these people. They're, they're, they're willing to listen to what we have to say. What do we say when we open our mouths and, and share the gospel? And in the next couple of lessons, we want to look at uh, understanding worldview and how to share uh, what is in the Bible with people so they understand our message. Because so often, Christians open their mouth and they begin to share, and the other person hasn't a clue what they're talking about. And we share away the gospel, and they have no idea what we're talking about, no reference to come at it by, and they go away totally confused because they didn't understand what was being shared. And so the challenge is, how do we share a valid message that they can at least understand and go away saying, I have comprehended and understood what you're sharing. So that brings us to the topic of worldview. All of us have a worldview. That, that's a way of looking at the world. It's the way a group of people think or, or the way they, they, they see the world. It's, in essence, it's kind of a map or an illustration of the way people think. And uh, th there are different models for this. There's, there's no one set way of understanding worldview. Worldview is a, a, quite a, a complex kind of, of topic. Um, and I think there are different kinds of models of how we can understand how people think and, and, and how they see the world. The term worldview started back with Immanuel Kant, who was a German philosopher back in the 1700s, and he used it in his German writings, and it wasn't until the 1950s that it was, uh, his works were translated into English, and in the 1950s we started hearing this word worldview. And uh, it's, it's just a new term that has come up in, in the last few years. And there's a lot of confusion about it and a lot of different ideas and people talk about worldview and what they mean by worldview and, and the challenges of it. And, and uh, even if you go to university, you'll hear one thing about worldview. If you go to a church, you may hear something else about worldview and so forth. And so it becomes confusing to us about what worldview is all about. And there are various different types of worldview maps or models of how worldview works. Because here is the problem. No one has yet come up with the parameters to understand sort of what sort of terms or what sort of things have to be dealt with when you make a worldview map. As a result, you have all different kinds of models of how to do it and how to build this worldview map. It's, um, it's difficult because the worldview, that map that is made, depends so much on the worldview of the person who's making the map. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Imagine um, if you're a researcher and you're looking at trying to make a worldview map, you will make the worldview map according to what is important to you. So if, a, if a, a communist Soviet Russian back a few years ago was making a worldview map of Americans, he would on his worldview map, he would say, what are the classes and what are the class struggles that are happening in America? And if he came over and interviewed Americans, they would go, classes? Class struggles? What's that? They haven't a clue. But his whole worldview map in Russia would be of what are the classes and the class struggles because that's what's important in his worldview. So he would map this worldview according to his worldview. So all the people who are building worldview maps have a problem because they take what is important to them and they go to another society and they say, okay, now we're going to map that worldview according to the criteria that I have set is important. And so this is very, very a big struggle. And uh, it becomes a problem when we as evangelicals start to analyze other cultures according to what is important to us. So we as evangelicals say, well, what is their perception of God? What is their perception of sin? What is their perception of salvation? And we want to build a worldview map based on those things because that's important to us. So the question is, how do you adequately build a worldview map?
And uh, it's a real struggle. If you go to the university, you will find that they'll talk about, okay, we will look at the whole world and we'll talk about religion, politics, economics, science, and so forth, and we'll build a worldview map by that. Well, that will look very different from somebody else. Now, in the 1960s, this whole idea of worldview caught on, and you got some Christian philosophers beginning to talk about worldview. And uh, over the years, you got different philosophers, different Christian writers talking about worldview. You have things like uh, Sire came along. He wrote a book. Sire developed this whole model of worldview. Well, so along came Giesler and Othellus and Nagel and Nash and all of these different Christian writers all developed different models of worldview and how it worked. And so they're all very different in, in, with each other. Sires is probably the most common one, and he asked five basic questions. And his five basic questions were simply this. What is man? Uh, oh, sorry. He started off with what is real, because he wanted to know about the spirit world or the, or the physical world. So what is real? Because some people deny there's a spirit world. So what is real? What is man? What happens to man at death? And what is the basis of um, morality and uh, the whole moral system we have? And what is the meaning of uh, human history? And those are the five questions he asked and tried to analyze all of the world's hist uh, cultures and everything else by these questions to come up with different worldviews. And so he came up with things like uh, he looked at uh, atheism and uh, naturalism and uh, existentialism and uh, all these types of things that were out there and even Christian theism and so forth and he put the world in all these are typical worldviews. Now nothing wrong with his model but Sire was in the West dealing with Western University students and so he was in building a model that would speak to the Western uh, University student to help him analyze where he was and how he saw the world and so forth. But Sire uh, wasn't uh, thinking of missions. And he wasn't trying to answer all of the world's uh, worldviews. So if, let's just take Sire's questions for a minute and ask a Muslim these questions. What is real? Well, he says, there's both spirit and matter. He believes in the real physical world and he believes in the spiritual world. He believes in angels. He believes in God. He believes in demons. Oh, okay, that sounds good. Okay, well, who is man? Well, he says, man is created by God. Oh, okay, sounds like we're in agreement here. So, what happens to man at death? Sire's question. Well, the Muslim says he faces judgment, and then he either gets hell or he gets rewards. Okay, sounds very close to us. So, what's the basis of morality? Sire's fourth question. Well, it's God's revealed word. Oh, well, it sounds like he's very close to what we believe, a Muslim. So what's the meaning of human history? Well, it's a record of God dealing with mankind. God has always been dealing with mankind. Okay, so we sit there and we look at Sire's five questions and we say a Muslim worldview and a Christian worldview should be very, very close. But in truth, they are very, very far apart. And so we discover that many of these models of worldview, when we come to them, they don't work when we deal with, our, with Muslims. So we have this challenge. What do we do with these models? Well, they're fine for North America or for Europe, where maybe we're trying to find out who are the atheists and who are the panatheists pan and who are the um, theists and so forth, and maybe that will help us put people in different categories. But... Um, does it really help us when we deal with um, missionaries and all these different things around the world that are out there? One of the things that North Americans have come up with is the idea of biblical worldview. And this has become very, very popular. And I've watched as people have taught about this. And the idea is that the Bible teaches a worldview. And if we all would read the Bible, we would all end up with the, the same worldview because it would be a biblical worldview. Now, I have a problem with that as I read through my Bible because I find Jewish worldview, I find Persian worldview, I find Greek worldview, 
I find Roman worldview in here. I find lots of different worldviews and different. Paul one time's talking to Romans, one time he's talking to to uh, to the Jewish people, another time he's talking to the Greeks, and so forth. So he's speaking to different worldviews rather than presenting us with one worldview. And as I think think about it, I've come to the conclusion that God is not interested in creating one biblical worldview. Rather, I think the Bible speaks to every worldview. You see, I believe that a Korean doesn't have to radically change his culture and become a North American or something else in order to be a true follower of Jesus. He can be a Korean and a follower of Jesus. And so can a German. He can be German and he can be a follower of Jesus. And you, believe it or not, he could be an American and you can be a follower of Jesus because this book speaks to every worldview and to every culture. And you will find it from beginning to end. It speaks to us wherever we are and it's calling us to be followers of Jesus, but it's not calling us to lose our particular culture or worldview. It's not there to rob us of our culture, but it's there to speak into our culture so we could be true followers of Jesus. And I discovered that my Arab friends could still be Arabs with their culture and their worldview, and they could be followers of Jesus because this book spoke to them. Now, there are some things that needed changing and correcting, as, as with every worldview, but this book was speaking to them. So I'm not calling people here to say, we all need to have a biblical worldview, and I have a biblical worldview. That's unfortunately what I feel some teachers are calling people to. And they're saying, I have a biblical worldview, and you should have the same worldview as I do. That's not what I'm calling us to. I'm calling us to go to the Bible and find out how does this speak to my worldview, and what does this book say actually say about worldviews? And that's something we're going to have to be challenged with as we decide on worldviews and what is out there. And so we need to ask ourselves then, if um, what defines worldview if it's not how we see the Bible or how we see uh, answer Sire's questions and so forth? And so we need to ask ourselves then, what model do we build that is biblically based that helps us understand how people think? And this, what I'm going to go through is what we call the Mueller model of worldview. And it is simply a model. It is simply a model of how people think and act to help you understand that someone else may be thinking differently than you do. It's not that this model is better than another model. It is more useful if you're going to the Muslim world or if you're going into uh, the Asian world or different other parts of the world because it helps to explain to us how different people think differently. It's not the answer to everything. It's simply a model. Okay, to start on this model, we want to start very simply with asking some questions about sin. The reason we go to sin is because sin is really what we're all about. Sin is everything. I mean, you know, if there was no sin, I'd be out of a job. If there was no sin, we wouldn't need any missionaries. We wouldn't need any preachers. If there was no sin... I mean, that's, we could all go home because our job would be done. The whole reason I am involved in ministry is because there is sin. It's much the same way as the medical industry and disease. You know, disease is out there. If there was no disease, you wouldn't need very many doctors. You wouldn't need very many nurses. We wouldn't need pharmacists. We could shut down the, the insurance industry, all the research that's going on, all that would be done with. But because there's uh, diseases out there, then the medical industry is focused on those. Now the difference is in the medical industry, they are busy studying diseases. They want to understand them. They want to go through diseases and try to catch, you know, what are they all about so they can get the answers to them. But in Christendom, we are not really much on studying sin. You know, they call the study of sin harmartiology, and I haven't found many classes that are schools that teach a class sin 101 and sin 102 and so forth. I mean, we, we study a bit about it, but we don't really look at sin. And sometimes we don't understand it. And yet, I believe we need to. We can't just say Jesus is the answer and plaster Jesus on if we don't really understand what are the questions that are out there. So we're going to learn a little bit about sin and 
what sin is all about. And that's going to take us to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to ask the question, what are the effects of sin? Now think carefully. What are the effects of sin from Genesis chapter 3? Now, if we were having a class and you were sitting right here, then we could get some dialogue going. Remember Genesis chapter 3? When Adam and Eve sinned, how did sin affect them? Well, if we started a list, maybe you would put on that list um, that uh, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe you would put on that list there was pain in childbirth. Maybe you would add... Um, they, um, there was, the ground was now hard to work and they had to work hard, harder than they had to before because the ground was unresponsive. Maybe you would talk about uh, guilt or shame or something like that that they felt. We get this long list up and that's the way I thought about it for a long time. So one day I realized that that wasn't true. That these are not the results of sin. Take that list and divide it into two. What are the, result, or the effects of sin? on Adam and Eve, and what were the judgments on Adam and Eve? They're two different things. God judged Adam and Eve. So put aside over here the judgments that God judged. Now how did sin affect Adam and Eve? There are three things in Genesis chapter 3 that show us the effects of sin. The first one is Adam was ashamed. Do you remember? Adam and Eve, they went and covered themselves they were ashamed. Before this, they felt no shame. They didn't feel any need to clothe themselves. They weren't ashamed of who they were or what they were. But as soon as sin came into their life, shame came. And so they felt shame. What else happened with Adam and Eve? God says, Adam, where are you? And he said, I was afraid and I hid myself. Afraid? This is Adam who had dominion over the earth. Remember, he went around and named all the animals. Everywhere he went, God had given him dominion. He wasn't afraid of anything. And now, after eating a piece of fruit, he's hiding in the bushes. Because sin brings fear. And thirdly, in, in verse 7, it tells us that Adam and Eve knew they had sinned. What's that? They knew they had sinned. That is guilt. They immediately felt guilt in their hearts and they knew they had sinned and their conscience spoke to them. Now these are three things. Imagine if I use this piece of paper and said this is sin. There are three results of sin. One is shame, one is fear, and one is guilt. Remember, they are not sin. They are the results of sin. Because sometimes we get confused and we want to get people saved and, and get rid of their guilt but we can't get rid of their guilt unless you get rid of the sin. Because when the sin goes, the guilt goes with it. And the shame goes with it and the fear goes with it because they're all wrapped up in one package. Now, ask a question. If worldviews developed, how did we get all these different worldviews? How did we end up with all these worldviews? I mean, man was created with one language and one worldview, one culture, how did we get to where we are today? Well, the language is easy. The Bible tells us Tower of Babel. They went there and there was you know, God split them into multiple languages. That the Bible is clear on. But where did we get all of our worldviews and cultures? Well, I think it started right back there. The Garden of Eden, after they had sinned, they were cast out. If you remember Cain, Cain had sinned. And Cain was angry. His face was downcast and... Uh, it tells us in the Bible, Cain went out from uh, the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod and Cain was afraid. And he said, I am afraid. What happens if someone finds me and if somebody wants to kill me because of what I've done? So Cain and all of his descendants lived with that fear and so fear began to invade their worldview. And their worldview had a huge mix of fear and many of the things they did was because there was fear in their lives where they lived. Where, what they chose to do and where they chose to move all had to do with that fear that was in their lives. Other people were wrestling with shame and others with guilt. And I believe that eventually these three became the building block of worldview. And I believe that we can look at all of the worldviews today and we can analyze them in the light of guilt, 
shame, and fear. Now, when I come to my Bible, I discover that there are three worldviews in the Bible. And this is very simple stuff. The first worldview is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. I call this Edenic worldview. I don't understand how they thought. Can you imagine living in a world without any sin? No knowledge of sin, no comprehension of sin. I mean, it just, it's mind-boggling to me to live in a world that's like that. That's the Edenic worldview. Two chapters is all the Bible gives us with the Edenic worldview. Well, at the end of the Bible, we have another two chapters, and it presents to us the heavenly worldview. And we're going to be in heaven. And this is a worldview that's hard to understand because I will be there having gone through all the trash and the ugliness and the pain and the suffering of this world. I will be in heaven. And I will be past sin. Sin will be behind me. And I will have been through all of this, but I'll be free of it. And this is a, a, a heavenly worldview that, that it takes into account sin, but it won't affect me. And I won't be sorry. There'll be no tears in heaven. I don't understand that worldview. But all of the worldview in between, from Garden of Eden to heaven, is a sin-tainted worldview. And so as I look around the world, I'm using sin and these three aspects of sin to help me understand other people, other worldviews, and other cultures. It's kind of like an artist. If you're an artist and you're painting, you can mix colors. So how many root colors are there? There's only three root colors. On my computer, I can take three root colors and I can mix 64 million different colors. So you might look at a whole field of flowers and say, oh, I can't believe that's only three colors. But it is. Your television screen has only got three little colored dots everywhere and it's just the combination of those that gives you all of the colors. And so, as I look at all of the worldviews, it may sound simplistic to reduce them to three, but I think we can look at all of the colors that are out there, worldview colors, and we can analyze them in the terms of these three, shame, fear, and guilt. Now, very briefly, let me tell you that sociologists do the same thing. And if you take a sociology class, they will talk about guilt-based cultures. And they will tell us that guilt-based cultures are European, North America, Australia, New Zealand. These are the guilt-based cultures or worldviews around the world. They, interestingly enough, also talk about shame-based cultures. And there are cultures that are across North Africa and across into Asia, and these are shame-based cultures. And there are fear-based cultures. These are cultures where uh, fear plays a very important part. And you'll find these across Africa and uh, traditionally across parts of South America, although that has changed, and in parts of Indonesia and different places. And these are fear-based cultures. So we have a pattern around the world, this mega picture of, of cultures that are different from one another. And sociologists, secular sociologists, use these terms when they describe the world. So... Let's take a few minutes and examine guilt-based cultures. And just, just to understand a little bit, some of us are from those cultures, some of us may not be from that culture. So it will help us understand uh, a little bit about the way people in a guilt-based culture think. And first of all, in a guilt-based culture, we try to put things between a, a, a continuum between right and wrong. And we think of things in terms of right versus wrong. Um, all my life, I grew up in a culture that was like this. And I was always told that's wrong to do or that's the right thing to do. And I was taught it's important to know the difference between right and wrong. And all of my society was built on right and wrong. As I grew up as a kid, um, entertainment was built around right and wrong. We always knew who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. That was an important part of entertainment. As kids, we would play and say, who's going to be the good guy? Who's going to be the bad guy? Because we would always split things up into those two. We, we, we just thought this way because society thought this way. And society was always putting things in good or bad. It's a good family or a bad family. And, and you're guilty or you're innocent. So as long as I'm not guilty, then I'm innocent and I feel fine. But uh, guilt controls a lot in our society. Why do I stop at a stop sign? Because it's the right thing to do. I don't go through. If I go through a stop sign or a red light, I feel guilty. 
because I did something wrong. So guilt helps control our society. I remember being in a swimming pool once in the Middle East with my kids, and the lifeguard blew his whistle. And so I stopped to see, is it one of my kids who was whistling at? Um, I noticed then that all of the Western people had stopped to see who's guilty. And the Arab kids kept swimming and their parents weren't paying any attention because the whistle didn't induce guilt to them like it did to me. As soon as that whistle was blown, I looked to see who's guilty. Am I guilty? Same thing happens if I'm going down the street and a police officer's light goes by. You know, oh, am I guilty? Did I go too fast? You know, I, I just feel it right away because I have been conditioned to think that way and to feel that way. And I live in a society that is controlled by that. And society all around me, people want to know what their rights are. What are my rights? My right is to do this. I want my rights. And we talk about women's rights. And we talk about um, even gay people's rights. And we talk about uh, now animal rights. And we talk about all kinds of things that are rights. And this is a big discussion in the West because we have rights and we have illegal things and we have rightful things. Um, we think in terms of war this way. If someone, um, we, we don't like to go to war as a nation unless we're going to war against somebody who is in the wrong, who is a bad person. So it's very important for media and for the government and for media to follow on to paint somebody as a bad person. And if they're bad or their society is bad and they're in the wrong, then we have the right to correct the situation. And so we're, we're stuck in this right-wrong thinking. All the way, our whole life is thinking about this. I grew up with... Um, in a, in a society where as a young person, I was never afraid. Uh, growing up as, as a kid, I didn't go to bed fearful at night. Fear played very little part of my childhood. I was very always happy. I went to school. I wasn't afraid to go to school. I, just, I had very little fear experiences. I mean, maybe to get up in front of a crowd and speak the first time, something like that. But there was very little fear that I experienced. I also experienced very little shame. Um, uh, just thinking back, my oldest brother, he, uh, he started drinking in high school, eventually left home, ended up in the big city living on the streets. Now, some people might say, oh, didn't that bring shame on your family? Well, actually, we always said he made bad choices. And so I'm not going to make bad choices like he made, but I didn't personally feel shame for what he had done because he made his own choice. And so we isolated ourselves from that. So I grew up in a family that almost exclusively thought in terms of right versus wrong. Now then I took an ethics class and a teacher asked a question. If a hungry child steals an apple, is he guilty or not? Oh, now this is a hard question. If a hungry child steals an apple, was that a good or a bad thing? And we have all these discussions, but I never realized at the time that there were other ways of thinking other than right and wrong, guilt and innocence. Our society also is very interested in redefining right and wrong. Because we have this right and this wrong in society, we try to have not have people feel like they're always in the wrong or always guilty. So we try to redefine what, are, what is right and what is wrong. So if something becomes more acceptable, then we have to redefine it. And in my country, in Canada, we've just redefined homosexuality as now it's okay. And, uh, and now everybody can relax because the laws have been changed and society has accepted it. So all these people no longer have to feel guilty about the way that they're acting. And no one can legally say you're guilty because society now accepts them. And so we have this guilt-based society where guilt controls and guilt um, is the important aspect of right and wrong. And it's the way I grew up thinking. But my question is, is right-wrong thinking, guilt-innocence, putting everything on that plane, is that Christian thinking? And I've met people who said, but that's the way Christians should think. That's what the Bible teaches, and so forth. But I think as we go through this teaching, we may discover there are other worldviews, and the Bible speaks to them as well as our worldview. So how did Christianity get so attached to guilt-based worldview. And as we look back, we have to go back to the early church to begin to understand the close connection between guilt-based worldviews and the early church.
Um, the origin of guilt-based uh, worldviews goes back to the Greek uh, city-states. If you remember way back, um, if you studied Greek history, for much of history, the world was run and uh, the worldview that was common was, was fear-based uh, worldview, in which case the strong man held the power and uh, everyone else obeyed him out of fear. Well, the Greeks came along and said, we need to change that. We're going to change that uh, worldview, I mean, the way we do things. And uh, they decided that they would take the law, just imagine this as a law book, and they would take the law and put it above the lawmaker. The idea is that before, the lawmakers were above the law. So that if you went to the, to the king, um, he would say, this is the law, maybe the law of the Medes and the Persians and stamp it. He could make the laws. And he could change the laws. And he was above the law. And uh, the, the Greeks changed that by putting the law above the lawmakers. Now this is something that not everybody in the world understands. When I was first in the Middle East, Nixon was being impeached. And people came to me and they said, we don't understand what's happening. How can the most powerful man and the most powerful nation in the world be thrown out of office? Doesn't make any sense. I had to think about it, and finally I said, that's because there's something more powerful than the President of the United States. They said, there is? Who? He says, not who, it's what? It's the law. And Americans hold the Constitution higher than the President of the United States, and he cannot change the Constitution and just do whatever he wants because the law is above him. Very, very different from the kind of rule that they're used to. If you remember Saddam Hussein, he was the lawmaker in his country. And so he would make the laws and give the laws to his people to rule by. But in many ways, Saddam and his family were above the laws of the country because he was the lawmaker and he handed the laws to the people. Very different concept than if the law is above you. So the Greeks came along and said, we will put the law above us and we will have these Greek city-states. Well, the Romans perfected the system. They developed the Republic in which you have the, the law and the, and the Roman way of life and that was the, the control over everything and Roman peace was there. And we've inherited that whole Romanized worldview in which um, uh, the, the Romans, they, their whole idea of the way they did their coinage and the way they handled money, their architecture, their language, their legal system, we've inherited all of that. You see, the Romans realized if the law is above the normal person then you need to have somebody who interprets the law. So you're going to need to have a judge who uses the law to judge cases, but you're going to need to have professional people who can argue. And so they developed the whole science of rhetoric. Rhetoric was the science of arguing cases, one against the other. And so you, do, you have people who studied rhetoric, this legal system, in order to uh, argue a case back and forth. And so rhetoric and legal rhetoric was a very, very important science during the Roman times. Now, step over to the early church. Just after the book of Acts, and we're going into early church times, think about some of the early church theologians that maybe you've heard about. Tertullian. Who was Tertullian? Well, he was the father of systematic theology. He was the one who presented the first time when he went through the scriptures and he said, this is what we as Christians believe. And he wrote the first theology book for Christians. And it's something that we have been following all the way down till today, Tertullian's basic outline of theology, the father of systematic theology. What was Tertullian's job before he was a theologian? Tertullian was a lawyer. He was trained in law. And so as he came to the Bible, he brought his legal point of view and he would go through the Bible looking at it from a legal point of view. Now, beyond that, we have Augustine. Who was Augustine? Well, Augustine was a priest back then. We've got a lot of Augustine's writings. What job did Augustine have before he was a... Uh, or what was he trained in before he was a theologian or before he was a priest? He too was a lawyer. Basil the Great was a lawyer. And I have a long list uh, of different ones of the early church uh, fathers who were all trained in law and all trained to think legally. And so they naturally thought in terms of right and wrong, in terms of justification by faith and looking at those terms because it was a legal expression of salvation. 
Well, let's jump forward to the Reformation, the Western Reformation. John Calvin was one of the leaders of the Reformation. What was John Calvin trained in before he became a theologian? He's trained in law. Well, what about Martin Luther? Well, he studied law before he changed to become a priest. Um, and you can go through the list of all of these Reformation people. Many of them studied law. And so this whole worldview of right versus wrong and, and the legal way we look at things in the West has influenced the way we as a Western church have come to our Bible and interpreted our Bible. Now, is this wrong? Is it right or wrong? Well, I'm not saying it's right or I don't want to put it on the scale of right versus wrong. All I'm saying is that the Bible speaks to our worldview and we can go to the Bible and find that it speaks to a guilt-based worldview. And there's lots of verses in the Bible that we can draw out of here that speak to us very, very clearly. But not all early church theologians were from that guilt-based worldview. Chris Ostom was a very interesting uh, early church father, and uh, we have many of his early uh, homilies and his sermons, 680 of them, and uh, not once does he mention justification by faith. So our Western theologians like to kind of put him aside because we're not quite sure where he is theologically because he's not strong on justification by faith because he came from a different worldview. He was more Middle Eastern in the way he looked at things and the way he lived, the people he ministered to. And so that wasn't a strong point of his theology. And so we kind of push him away because he doesn't speak to our worldview the way we think we should be talked to, uh, the Bible should speak to us. Well, soon after the, uh, the early church, along came Islam. And Islam was very different. Muhammad was from a Nabataean background. He was, um, uh, grew up on a very strong uh, guilt, uh, no, sorry, a very strong shame culture. Shame versus honor is the basis of this culture. So they would put everything on the line between shame and honor. Not between right and wrong, but being shameful or being honorable. And all of Islam that followed speaks to a shame-based worldview. And if you don't understand a shame-based worldview, you will not understand the Quran or the Hadith or all the history that's taking place because you don't understand why people are making decisions or what they're really saying in, in the Quran and in the Hadith that are there because it's based on an understanding that you understand shame-based worldview. And where has Islam gone? It has penetrated all through shame-based worldview cultures. It does very well there. It's struggling to communicate its message to a guilt-based worldview, just as we are struggling to communicate our message to a shame-based worldview. So we have this, uh, this new religion that comes along, and uh, it speaks very clearly to people from a shame-based worldview. Now, how do we share the gospel? How do we tell people normally about the gospel. I, as I look at our typical way of sharing the gospel in the West, I discover we often use legalistic terms. Things like the four spiritual laws. You ever seen that little booklet and people say, I want to share with you the four spiritual laws. Well, wait a minute. Where does the Bible say anything about four spiritual laws? And why are we saying laws? I mean, you see, we're putting it into a legal terminology immediately and we, we tend to do that when we share the gospel and we use a legal terminology another way of sharing the gospel is using the romans road and we use these verses that take us through the book of romans and we share the gospel with people very very common to use the romans road um, but i want us to think for a minute we're going to just talk about romans road in a minute but let's think a little bit about contextualization and i want to ask a question before we get to how we share the gospel uh, just track with me for a minute. Mar uh, contextualization is where someone tries to put the gospel in a context where people will understand it. The best example we have is of uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17, and uh, he's sharing the gospel with the Greeks. Now, he doesn't have a Jewish audience, so he can't appeal to the Old Testament because they don't understand about the Old Testament and the prophets. So in Acts 17, it tells us that Paul quotes ancient philosophers, and he quotes poets, Greek poets. 
And he starts there, and he begins to share the gospel. And then he begins to talk with them, and then he draws their attention to this idol that's there, to the unknown God, and he says, I'm going to talk to you about the unknown God, and he begins to talk to them about Jesus and about the resurrection, and then they, you know, the whole conversation takes off after that, and then he's back and forth there. But he uses the context of their own religion. He contextualizes the gospel so that they can understand it. Now, let me ask a question. When Paul writes to the Roman people in Rome, he had not been to Rome yet. He had wanted to go to Rome and couldn't get there. He said that several times. So he's writing down what he would have said to the Romans when he got there. So if you're wondering, what did Paul preach when he got to these places? The book of Romans is an example of what he would have preached to the Romans. Now, if Paul contextualized to the Greeks on Mars Hill, did he contextualize when he wrote the book of Romans to the Roman people? I believe he did. And he contextualized it so that the Romans could follow through. The Romans who understood that the law was above the lawmaker. The Romans who were beginning, who really had a grasp of of that guilt-based culture. And so the book of Romans is contextualized. And it is contextualized for you and for me if you are from a guilt-based culture. So I come to the Bible and I find my most meaningful book in the Bible is often the book of Romans as far as explaining Christian doctrine and theology. I go to schools and I find that they preach all through the Bible, but they have a special class on Romans. Somehow Romans holds a special place in Western theology and thinking. And that's because it's the book that's written to our worldview. It's written to a guilt-based worldview. And so we can go to it and find the, the gospel here. When I have students who are going out and working amongst Muslims, I like to say, take a paperclip and paperclip the book of Romans and don't use it. Now, share with me the gospel without using the book of Romans. And then they begin to struggle. And I say, well, just share with me the gospel from the gospels. Oh, how do you do that? You see, we can begin to struggle, but the book of Romans was contextualized for us. And so we have a challenge when we come to the Bible to say, how does the Bible speak to my worldview? And, uh, and uh, if you are from a guilt-based worldview, you will find that there are many, many books, many, many teachings out there that help you relate the Bible to your worldview. I went to Bible school, and I remember we were studying through the Bible, and we were doing Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and you know we, we got mentioned all these various uh, sacrifices and various things that are happening in the temple. But when we came to the guilt offering, then the teacher said, okay, and he took a whole class to talk about the goat that was taken to the edge of the camp and how the guilt was put on it, because this was the guilt offering. And we, he didn't barely mention all these others, like the vessels that are unholy and they're brought into the temple and there's a special ceremony to make them to be vessels which are holy and usable for God. He didn't talk about that. You know, they were unclean and how to make them clean vessels. Didn't talk much about that. He talked about guilt because there is a thread that starts in Genesis and it goes all the way through our Bible and it talks to us and it relates to us about guilt and how God deals with man's guilt. And so we who are from a guilt-based culture find that is a very meaningful thing and we go through our Bible following that line. But there's more to the Bible than just those verses. And many times there are verses we don't understand and maybe it's because it doesn't necessarily speak to our worldview, but maybe they're there for someone else in their worldview and we can just appreciate maybe what it says, but maybe it's not speaking to us, but it will speak to someone else. Okay, we want to move on from guilt-based worldviews to fear-based worldviews. These are worldviews in which fear places, uh, plays a very big, uh, important part. Now, remember what we said way back at the beginning? There's this thing called sin, and the uh, results are the effects of sin are guilt, shame, and fear from Genesis chapter 3. So we've looked at guilt and the worldviews that have slowly developed where people have this guilt-based thinking. But there are some cultures in which there we have what we call fear-based thinking. And many of the decisions that are made are based on fear. This is the key word, decisions. If you want to know sort of how your worldview is, look at when you make a decision, what do you think about? Do you think about, is this the right thing to do? Does it feel right for me? 
Um, I, you know, I want what's good, right, what, you know, what I want and so forth, and this, this is the right thing for me to do? Or do you think about, um, uh, I'm afraid of the future, and oh, you know, I'm afraid of what's going to happen, so if I get this job, then I can f- you know, fit in here? Or do you do it because somebody else wants you to become this or study this, and you're doing it for someone else? So think about this whole question of decisions. It will help you understand this mix. All of us have some guilt, some shame, and some fear in our worldviews. Some of us will have a stronger mix of one than of another. But there are worldviews that have a predominant mix of fear. And what this is, is people make decisions based on fear. Now this is a, a mindset that has fear versus power. So there are things that we are afraid of, and we want to get power over the things that we are afraid of. And so the whole worldview is wrapped up around how do I get power over the things that I'm afraid of? Maybe it's nature. And uh, maybe you, you know, the animistic people, they will do things to get power over nature, to make it rain or to keep the, the hurricane away or whatever it is. They will do something in order to have power over nature. Maybe it's power over the ancestors. Maybe it's power over disease. And so there's a disease and they want to get power over it to defeat the disease. Maybe it's demons or spirits. Maybe it's their enemies. And so they cast a curse on their enemy. There's some sort of, of charm-making thing to, to curse somebody and uh, they can get rid of their enemy that way. Maybe it's power over something that's supernatural. It can be power over people. And so they're, they're obsessed with this fear that they have and how can they get power over the person or the, the thing that they are afraid of. Now, most of these cultures, this kind of worldview thinking is very common in animistic cultures. Animistic cultures, very often they see the whole world as spiritual and physical, but mostly spiritual and a bit of physical. So there's a lot happening in the spirit world and it's affecting us here. And so they're always uh, referring and thinking of this, this spiritual powers that are around about us. And you find this in all kinds of uh, uh, countries all around the world. And you also find it invading other religions. You find it in Christianity. Sometimes in the Catholic Church, there are things that people are trying to get power over. So you go to the saint or you go to something else and you're you're trying to get this to get power over something. It's invaded Islam. So you have what we call folk Islam. And so there's a mix there. There's folk Buddhism and uh, even the communist world. Russia is a very interesting country. Under the czars, the czars ruled using that fear-power paradigm. The czar had power, and the people had none, and he used power, and so they were in fear of the czar and his army and what he said to do. So power was very important. Well, they got rid of the czar, and they replaced it with communism. And guess what? The worldview hadn't changed. So what did communism become? It became a fear-power paradigm where the communists had the power and everyone lived in fear. So now they got rid of the communists and got, Pat got rid of them. And so now what have you got today? Now you've got the mafia and you've got crime taking over and crime bosses. They're still the same worldview. It hasn't changed. People still live in fear of the things that are going on around about. I have a brother-in-law who ministers uh, in, in the Soviet Union, and he said to me, he said, the, the people have not changed their worldview. They ch- might change the form of government, but the worldview hasn't changed. And therefore, you might say, well, if we bring them democracy, it, will ch- it won't change. Because they're still locked into that fear-power paradigm, and until that is addressed, no matter what form of government you put on it, it will take the form of the worldview that they're looking at. So, Worldviews are very, very important in uh, where we come from. Just want to ask a question. What about weaknesses? This I got challenged with just the other day by an African man from Africa who said, okay, I agree with you, Africa, we have fear, power, paradigm. But he said, I don't understand how come the West abuses power. And so we had to do some discussion and thinking about this. And you know what, I think, I think enough that there are weaknesses as well as strengths in all of these worldviews. And as he pointed out to me, he said, we in Africa, we've never gone out conquering the world. He said, we have checks and balances even in our fear power worldview so that people don't rise up to too great a power because there are checks and balances that will keep them in place. So you don't get you know, huge dictators. But 
Look at Europe. He said, centuries of bloodshed followed bloodshed followed bloodshed of people trying to get power. How do you explain that? I thought, oh, got to think for a minute. Had to pray for a minute. And then I said, you know what our problem is? We put everything in the West between right and wrong. And we don't understand fear and power very well. And so when you take somebody and say, you have power, he abuses it. So in England, you had the divine right of kings. And so they were right in whatever they did because they had divine right. And so they abused the power that they had. You see this in Napoleon's life. You see it in Hitler. You see it in many of these people who have risen up. We have a problem with power because we don't understand the proper use of power because we don't have the checks and balances in our lives that are there. And so it has been a struggle. And so all of these cultures and worldviews have weaknesses as well as strengths. Well, fear-based power, people who are afraid of things. And they may be afraid of authority. They may be afraid of others. And they want to get power over them. Even in love. I know of a young man who went over to, um, to a gypsy woman and he said, who, who did these casting spells and different things. And he said, there's a girl in the village and I want her to love me. Okay, at this point she doesn't even know I exist, it seems like. And I do everything I can and she doesn't notice me. So I want a charm to make her fall in love with me. Now that may sound very strange to someone who's outside of that situation, but it's very natural to him. He wants power over her to make her fall in love with him. That's the way his worldview worked and that's the way he approached his relationship. And as you uh, look at this, you realize we need to take the gospel to people who are locked in a world of fear, power, paradigm. And actually, the church has done very well. We as a church have related well to, to, uh, to uh, guilt-based cultures, and the gospel has spread well in Europe and in North America and Australia and New Zealand. As we said, these are what sociologists call guilt-based cultures. But the gospel is also spreading quite quickly and doing quite well, going through Africa and many of the uh, other uh, uh, tribal country, uh, places around the world, as we as a church learn to relate the gospel to fear-based cultures. And because Jesus is greater than what they're afraid of. Jesus is greater than the demons. He's greater than the ancestors. He's greater than all the supernatural things. He's greater than your enemies. And we understand that gospel message, and we can preach it, and so we're doing well. The problem is, how do we share the gospel with people from a shame-based worldview? And shame-based worldviews is where we are struggling to go. As we said, shame-based worldviews, as sociologists say, start in uh, across North Africa, Morocco, and go all the way across North Africa, and go across Asia. And this is what we call the 1040 window, or almost exclusively shame-based worldviews. Added to that some of the North American uh, native tribes and a few others around the world. But we struggle to relate the gospel. And so in the next lesson, we're going to look at shame-based worldviews. We're going to spend a lot of time investigating them and looking at them because it is shame-based worldview where Islam has penetrated the greatest and where we as a church must concentrate our attention if we are to bring the gospel to Muslim people. Thank you.